Welcome to another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast with me, James Roberts, transformational coach, two-time Paralympian, and TEDx speaker. I have another awesome episode for you today, so let's get straight into it. And on today's show, I've got Darren Shank. Good morning. Darren is a former professional racquetball player and spent three years in the top 20 in the world on the international racquetball tour. Now as a coach, he is in his 14th season as head coach of Arizona State University's racquetball team with a Women's National Championship and two-time Collegiate Coach of the Year awards to his, to his credit, as well as producing over three dozen Collegiate All-Americans. In his day job as the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Triage Now, which is a medical call center for workplace injuries, he works with companies like General Mills, Goodyear Tire and Rubber, American Red Cross, UCLA, Liberty Mutual, and many more. So welcome on to the show, Darren. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Awesome, oh, my pleasure. So if we go back to the days of you, you being in the top 20 to start with. Racquetball is not in the same space from a from a public viewpoint i say to t- tennis so if you give my audience why they should watch it <laughs> um well i'm a big tennis fan but i think racquetball is a lot more exciting um in terms of like i was one of the slower hitters on the pro tour and i could hit a racquetball about 140 miles an hour okay that's not uh, slow that's- and that's every shot, right? Almost. I mean, that's not just the serve. Um, you know, tennis has evolved to be a really, uh, you know, a higher speed version than of what it used to. Um, racquetball was has been that way for a long, long time. The men and women are diving all over the floor. If you're not diving two or three times every rally, you're not trying that hard. Mm-hmm. And that really can lend itself to a lot of excitement. And that's just with two people in there. You get four people playing doubles. It is high speed chaos. It's very, very cool to watch. So for for the audience and myself, because I've heard of rocket racquetball, but what what's the difference between racquetball and say squash? So a racquetball court's uh, ten feet longer. It's twenty by forty instead of twenty by thirty, like a squash court is. Um, the ball is uh, a little bit more dynamic. You can definitely hit it a lot harder. Um, the rackets are kind of similar to more similar to a, a, a shortened up tennis racket than a squash racket would be. Um, the newer, the newer evolution of squash rackets have kind of gone that direction as well. But I would say squash is a little bit more strategic in the sense that you can't just end a rally on, on almost every shot. You have to build an opportunity to play real true offense to end, end a rally. And in racquetball, you can you can pretty much hit a rally ending shot on almost every shot. There's an opportunity because there is no tin like there is in squash where you have to hit the ball above a certain height. In racquetball, you can aim literally an inch off the floor, make the ball bounce twice immediately, and end the rally. And that the opportunity for that pretty much exists on almost every shot. How how have you seen the game evolve? Because be it you know they've got they've got um how do i describe this it's quite hard when it's verbal to to, to kind of showcase something that's visual so i describe it to you so you get an idea you know the ones that see see through glass all the way through do you think that's an evolution that's obviously made it a little bit more uh entertaining yeah the four wall glass court um squash actually came up with a really cool idea quite a while ago now, um, they took a four wall glass court and they just plopped it down in the middle of Grand Central Station in New York Oh wow! and made everybody walk around it. And they had <laughs> professional players playing matches to, ex- to as basically an exhibition to, to showcase the sport to the world, or at least to all of the people in Grand Central Station. Um, racquetball kind of followed that trend and created a four wall glass court. It's got a translucent front um, theoretically it's portable, but it's, it's difficult to move. Um, the original grand plan with that was to have a multi-city tour where you would take that portable court and set it up on the beach in California or in the mall of America, places like that. And again, just sort of 
have a, a forced audience by putting it in the middle of a popular place and just having a tournament there or having exhibition matches to showcase what the sport was like. And if we, we fast forward, obviously, back to you, Darren. What was the evolution like from going from your playing career to go to going into coaching? Um, it uh, the the coaching thing has been <clears throat> probably the most personally rewarding thing I've ever done. Um, my professional career was all about me and what I could achieve myself. And coaching, uh, I went in with that mindset, but I quickly learned that I was not working with a bunch of scholarship athletes. Um, I uh, the team that I started out with in my first year as coach. Uh, was a very talented team, but nobody's there on scholarship. We're not having mandatory, you know, training sessions at 6 a.m. and then workouts at noon and then practice and play at night. You know, it was a much more casual approach than that. Um, and I also figured out early on that I was really teaching life lessons disguised as racquetball lessons. And so I went from kind of a militant a driving approach that I had with myself throughout my own career to much more of a role of, uh, of a coach and a mentor for life in general through the sport of racquetball. And that really is what made that such a, a rewarding thing for me personally. And have you had to evolve your coaching again and again with obviously the, what was, what's Facebook now about 15 years old, yeah. the evolution of social media. And some would say that, I'm not going to generalize because that that would be that'd be harsh, and I'd get criticism. But in terms of there is the the stereotype of the the current generation are a little bit a little bit soft. <laughs> Obviously, so, that's non PC. <laughs> I, I it's we hear that stereotype enough that there there must be some level of truth to it. Um, I, you know, I've been around college kids consistently for the last 15 years, and I, the kids that end up in a program like mine, where it is voluntary, it's not helping you pay for school. Um, it's something that, you know, you can do on your own quite a bit and then practice with the team as well. Um, I think that the, the type of kid that gravitates towards an activity like racquetball and to try to make the team doesn't really fit that stereotype. It, I think as a gross generalization, yes, um, that our, our younger generations have moved towards that direction, but the kids that end up in a competitive sport environment are, are still kind of a little more old school in their approach of, they understand that they have to make the team that, you know, winning and losing are part of this. Not everybody gets a, a participation ribbon, things like that. Is it not tough then for, for, for a collegiate athlete within your program to look at say and if you don't want to answer this is fine go ahead because it's controversial <laughs> to look at say the basketball program or look at the football program and kind of saying okay we're still advertising the university mm -hmm. we're still donning the 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 colors of the university but we don't get any we don't get as much in return from be it tuition on board is that not yeah. tough for those individuals? Well, the again, the kids that end up in my program, um, we've we've had some top level junior players. Uh, our our number one girl for the last four years was from Costa Rica, and she was a, a world class junior racquetball player before she even came to ASU. Um, but she's not going to walk on to another sport and and earn a scholarship that way. And the racquetball program does not uh, bring any revenue into the school, so. We're a club level sport. The school has been very supportive of our efforts. When you walk into the Sun Devil Fitness Center, the, there's a glass wall on the side of court one. And we have a huge sticker on the side on the side wall that says home of ASU racquetball and has our 2007 uh, Women's National Championship sticker up there as well. So anybody that walks into the building knows that we have a, a very competitive racquetball program. And anytime that we host an event that ends up broadcast on local news or over the internet, um, you see the ASU logo. And so in the school has always been supportive of our efforts, but we just don't generate a huge audience and or any revenue for the school. So it's kind of commensurate with the, like, the football programs generate millions and millions of dollars. We don't. So the exposure and support is based on that for sure. 
what do you think you as a program could ch- tweak in terms of that? Because obviously uh, we are still in the midst of a, I think it's been downgraded from a pandemic to an epidemic where I live. Yeah. But be it the fans are not as ever present for, for, for either basketball or, or football. Do you think if it was to utilize the model of squash or racquetball, where you say it was kind of doing a tour, if you were to do a live stream and people could see the doggedness and relentlessness of your of your players to kind of much yeah. you know every 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 ball is life and death yeah. literally but in terms right. of they're sacrificing themselves as much as say the women's basketball team the men's basketball team uh or a goal line stand with with with, with the men's football team mm-hmm. do you think that would help the, the prestige to bring more exposure to to your program I think that the sport itself is very viable at a much larger level. The hard part is it's very difficult to televise and it's also very difficult to put in front of a large audience. So even if you take that portable court and stick it into a tennis stadium, for example, where you've got bleachers and stuff, um, the, the pro tour, the international racquetball tour did that for several years at the racket club of Memphis, which used to host, the St. Jude Tennis Classic as well. And so they would uh, build the court onto a tennis court and have stadium seating around it. But that was really only about 1,500 people, right? If you built a bigger stadium or took the, that court to a larger venue, you just can't see and follow the ball if you have you know nosebleed seats, right? Um, in tennis, I've been into the stadium in New York for the US Open with really bad seats, and you can still kind of see what's going on. And racquetball just doesn't lend itself to that. And televising it is very difficult because if the cameras are close enough to see the ball, the players are running in and out of the frame. And if it's pulled back far enough to see the whole court, now you lose sight of the ball during the rallies. So it takes a lot of post-production work to make it look good on television, um, which it can be done, but that's very expensive. And for a smaller sport like racquetball, without a lot of outside industry sponsors like Gatorade or Nike or somebody like that, the funding just isn't there to do that work and bring it to the mainstream attention, like, for example, the X Games did for skateboarding and things like that. So what was it? So we we can go backtrack a little bit. What was the allure for you to get into the sport that is kind of, from, from an American perspective, way off the radar? So... My, my thought of how I was going to get to college was to follow my dad's footsteps, which was to, to go on a college, uh, to go to college on a wrestling scholarship. Uh, he did, he, that's what he did. He wrestled and then coached beyond um, his college years. And I would grew up in that environment from a little kid on. And I thought that's what I was going to do. My initial chance to make the team for high school as a freshman Uh, I was wrestling off for a position on the team and I got a neck injury and that was the end of my, of my wrestling career. So I, at some point down the road, like maybe six months after that, my uncle took me to play racquetball and he's a lot older than I am, not, was not in real great shape and just ran circles around me. And I couldn't believe it. You know, here I am, you know, wrestlers kind of have a little bit of an arrogance about them, about being great athletes and all that stuff. And while that may be true, uh, there's, there's different types of athleticism and chasing down a, a, a ball in, inside of a 20 by 40 court was a far cry from, you know, three minutes on the wrestling mat. So um, I lived right across the street from a high school that had outdoor racquetball courts. And after my uncle kicked my butt, I, I went to the courts every day and practiced. And a month later, we played again. And instead of spotting me a whole bunch of points to 21, and winning every single game, I actually won one of the games the next time around, and he only spotted me 15 points that game. So uh, it was, in, you know, looking back, it was a minor level of improvement, but I saw improvement, and then I, which really hooked me in. And then not too many months after that, there was a professional tournament here in Phoenix, and I got the opportunity to attend that. And I did try to play in the lowest amateur level that there was but I had never played indoors with a back wall. And so that was completely different than what I had learned on. 
and I got smashed. I mean, it wasn't even competitive, even at the very bottom beginner level, but I watched the pros play that weekend and I was just amazed uh, watching those guys hit the ball so hard and dive around on the court. And it was just a, a really cool thing that I thought right then and there, I want to be part of this at some point. And that set me down that path. And you've, you've gone on now to coach. And I, I said three dozen, which uh, some people have to do the math. That's 36 all Americans. What, what is your, if you had to put a target on there, what would you like to achieve by the time you're finishing coaching over a hundred to 200? It's hard to say. Um, you know, the, the, the criteria in racquetball is that you make the semifinals of your division to be collegiate all American. So whether you're the number one player on the team or the number six player on the team, you still are eligible to do so. So sometimes I have a girl or a guy who joins the club in August and by February of the following year, makes the club, makes the team, goes on to compete. And if they make at number six, they make it to the semifinals of their division, they are a collegiate All-American. Now, technically, they're still pretty new at the sport. So having we our, 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 what I believe will be our number one girl starting in the fall is a top-level junior player. So she's probably a shoe-in for that designation. Um, I don't know who our number six guy or our number six girl is going to be yet because we haven't started school. We haven't done any recruiting coming out of the pandemic. We skipped last year altogether. So we're kind of starting from scratch and, and really building up the team uh, around a few core players. So I may not have more than one or two people that really have a shot at collegiate All-American status next year. But the following year, I could have, you know, half the team that has a real legitimate shot at doing that. So it's really hard to project a number. And I, I don't have any personal goals as a coach. It would be great to win a national championship, of course. But I just my goal is to always have each individual player maximize their own level of ability. And whatever results that yields, that's perfectly fine by us. So I would put you in the, probably a racquetball equivalent of Coach Calipari from, from basketball at, at UK then, in terms of oh. it's all about the player. Yeah, of, of what I know of him, yeah, that, that that's a much more uh, equivalent comparison than some some guys that are always trying to win national championships. You know, cycling through players, uh, burning people out, pushing too hard, all that stuff. You know, I uh, again, I probably came in with that mentality because that's how I coached myself as a as a player, but um, that that wasn't the right fit for the audience that I had. Uh, you know, it's, it's my, my assistant coach, uh, used to be a football coach and he brings a little bit of that mentality, uh, into it sometimes, which is good because it kind of offsets my, um, softer approach, I guess. Um, so between the two of us, it's a good balance and we kind of keep a little bit of an edge to what we do, but also have a little bit more inclusive approach as well. You don't have your players doing up downs then, does he? No, we do. <laughs> the, the, the fun part for me at this stage of my life is that I don't compete in racquetball tournaments myself anymore, but I still love playing against the kids on the team. And so I can't wait to get on the court with our new number one girl and see how she, how I hold up against her because she's a lot younger than I am. Again, she's a world-class player and speed is not always the biggest factor in terms of how hard I hit the ball. Um, I, you know, she probably can hang right with me with, in, in terms of all of those things. So it will really come down to my ability versus her ability. And then I can dial it back for the next, the player who's the next level down and the next level down. And I've gotten, I've tried to be as good as possible about, um, having a just barely winning mentality against any player. If I, if I make it close against the number six person, they feel really good about what they've done and like they're, you know, right there hanging with me. And same thing with the number one players. Is that not difficult with American mindset to, <laughs> dial, it, to dial it down? I'm, I'm generalizing and I'm, 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 I'm massively playing to the international stereotype. Yeah. But in terms of, do you think it's the evolution of you as a, as a human being to go from pretty much the ruthless person you were to yourself to 
you're talking about the number six player, I could crush their dreams. <laughs> Absolutely. And and that's a good way to put it. I, I was definitely ruthless uh, as my as a self-coach, but when coaching others, I have I have learned to have a very, very different approach. And I've I've learned and grown a lot as a person for sure. And you know, to to the credit of the girls team, some of my toughest players and athletes have absolutely been the girls. I've had somebody play a match with a broken left wrist. She was right-handed, but she broke her left wrist. I had somebody uh, get injured during a match and separate her collarbone and in her right shoulder, which was her playing arm and refused to quit her and her doubles partner managed to win a tiebreaker match where her doubles partner did a lot of the work, but she refused to quit. She didn't want to let her partner down. It was the finals. It was her last year. And in her wedding pictures, you can see she's got the AC separation sticking up through the dress. <laughs> you can see. From the, for, so she'll remember that that moment forever, unfortunately. Um, so some of the guys need a pat on the back and some of, the, some of them need a kick in the butt. And the women are exactly the same. Some of my toughest and most competitive athletes have been on the women's side. And that's been a really fun th- dynamic to figure out who needs what as a coach and from me, and then as a player, what motivates them, what they need to hear, you know, in a practice session when they're struggling versus in a match when they're in a competitive scenario. That's the really fun part for me as a coach. And I've definitely grown, um, as a, as you put it, as a human in that aspect over the evolution of my coaching career. Do you think it comes down to probably coaching as a whole, going from coaching somebody to its man management? Because what you're talking about is uh, balancing a person's emotions. Yes. So, um, I, as you know, any high level athlete knows 80% of it's mental, right? You get to a point where everybody has the skill set on a fairly level playing field, and it really becomes how you handle the stress of a competitive environment. Some people, it brings the best out in them. Some people, they tighten up and they just can't perform. Um, One of the girls on the team the last couple of years had a lot of anxiety before a match. And she told me when I was, you know, when I played sports in high school, I would throw up before every soccer game. And every, every time I ran cross country, I would struggle with that stuff. And, and so I actually had her sit down before a match and watch YouTube videos of Bruno Mars and James Corden doing the car- carpool karaoke, if you know what that is. It's one of the most, Bruno Mars is so charismatic and they have so much fun doing that. And they just suck you into that mindset of everything's fun and light and laughable. And I would have her watch that video before she would go play. And it would totally change her mindset of, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I have to go perform to, carrying that that fun and light attitude that those guys had on the video that she watched onto the court and realizing if I just relax and play, I enjoy this and I'm a better player. And that really helped her achieve a much higher level of competitive play than she ever was able to tap into before. Was she a type of an introverted person and not to interest? She, she was. And that, you know, I mean, she definitely wanted to win. She definitely had the desire to, to win and perform well but she couldn't get out of her own way until I kind of shared that trick with her and, and got her to relax enough to let herself just go do what she's been training to do for a while. I think loads of people listening to that can take heed that advice, you know, get out your own way. It doesn't matter what level you're at. It's yep. generally speaking and myself included, normally you, that's the problem. It's not, it's not <laughs> external. And Darren, you like this one because I used to get told this loads and loads back in the day, uh, which James will turn up. So how would you coach <laughs> me in, in, in terms of you, you, you were told that about me in recruitment? Yeah, that's, a, you know, that's not unique to you by any means. Um, for some people, it's, it's, uh, it's too much desire, right? Some people freeze up because they want to do so well, so badly they don't want to let the coach down or themselves down or their teammates down. And they, they just freeze up because of that. For other people, it's lack of uh, motivation or they don't care enough. 
I don't find that to, to be the case too often. Um, so it depends on the player and, and it's very situational as well. I know that one of the things that my, that I always look for is if I have a team up a player that says, comes off the court during warmup and says, I can beat this guy. Um, okay. Don't think it's going to be easy. It's never easy. And you're not winning. You're just ahead at the moment. So you got to go in and do your job. And that becomes a, a, a moment by moment evaluation. If you're struggling to get started or to relax and play your way into a match, then we have to deal with that. If you're blowing somebody off the court and you start showing off and, you know, making somebody look bad or just coasting, that's a whole different set of problems, but that comes up. And especially with younger players, you know, with somebody that doesn't have a ton of experience that's gone in and blown a huge lead because they took their foot off the gas and realized, Oh, geez, you know, like you said, coach, I wasn't winning. I was just ahead at the moment. And now I find myself in a tiebreaker of a match and I'm in danger of losing. Right. So all of that stuff is situational. And that's the part that I love is kind of digging into your head and figuring out what's going on in there at that moment and how I can best help you. Well, that's why I had a discussion with my um, club coach for Wager Basketball over the weekend. It's like, you singled me out. And that's, that's, I think you'd only do that maybe in doubles as well. This person can better respond to. Uh, I'll use a British term being under the cosh or kind of deal with mental uh, scrutiny better than the other individual. So right. he called me out for, you're not pulling your weight, James, and, and the, the tempo is too low. Uh, it's lackluster, and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. That's still a couple of years ago. But the point I, I'm making of that is he knows what button to push with me specifically back based on my background as you're not going to answer back. You're going to take it on the chin and you're going to do something about it. Be it if you are annoyed or pe peed off with what was said, I was. Um, ultimately, I wouldn't have backchatted any because it was pointless because it's like, well, you're right. The team isn't. I didn't yeah. like being singled out, but he has a point that we're only up by a couple of points, which we should be blowing the team off the court. And obviously I did some of that and I led by the, from the front, but I reminded him of it because ultimately I think he was asking me, well, you, you we put in a shift uh, at national practice. I think it's just subconsciously. I just do it. It doesn't take much. It's, it's a step up from, from the club. Okay. It's not going to be particularly pleasant because it's been the first one, first practice back in 15 months. So it wasn't that pleasant and there's a lot of conditioning, but if you don't put in the work, you don't reap the benefits. Right. Yeah. That's a big thing. And I, I lead by example. I do the workouts with the kids. I'm on the court with them. And so I never ask them to do something I can't do. Like if we do a little workout on a Saturday where we go and drive to one of the little mountains that's near ASU and run up the mountain. I'm the first one up the hill, right? I do my best to lead by example. And so I never put somebody in a situation where I'm asking them to do something that they haven't already seen me do. They see me put the work in and the, the being, you know, more than twice their age, still running circles around them on the court. Uh, and during the workouts, that takes a lot of the excuses and the bad attitudes right out of the equation. And, and, you know, and we've had a great culture, which really helps a lot. Again, my assistant coach, Jim Winterton is a hall of fame racquetball coach. I just, I got to the team first. That's why he's my assistant. Um, but he works with some of the best players the sport has ever seen in the history of the game. And so my, my personal resume and my own worth work ethic on the court now and Jim's experience and, you know, being able to reference the, the number one male player ever in the sport as his, as his coach or who he coaches for and other very well-known players. It just takes a, it just sets the right tone for the culture of the team and the rest of it kind of becomes self-reinforcing. And you were talking about running a hill. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you're doing that earlier in the morning because obviously the Americans will know you, Arizona is a desert. Uh, I'm assuming you're not doing that in the middle of the day. 
No, it's uh, well, it's, the school doesn't fall in the time where it's the absolute hottest, uh, but we definitely avoid avoid the heat. Um, that's something that we do typically in January or February when it's you know a high of 80 degrees during the day instead of 110 like it's going to be this week. Um, yeah, I don't I won't don't want people dropping dead halfway up the hill. I'm sure I would get in trouble for that. So um, we 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 do those things in a in a, a conscientious manner of everyone's safety. But I want it to be that hill's about 200 yards of gravelly uphill. It's about a 10% grade. It's it's brutal. And so if if somebody doesn't throw up at the top, you didn't try hard enough, right? I mean, and sometimes it's me, right? I mean, sometimes I'm pushing hard enough that I'm the one that's bent over getting ready to, to puke at the top of the hill because it's so hard. But if you pace yourself, if you pull back, if you think I can't, I, I, you know, I, I know what my limits are, you're not going to, you're not going to reach that point. So I'm always trying to help people find that where the, what they think their line is and move it six inches forward. And the hill's a real good indicator of that. If you go full blast up that hill and you're, you know, losing your lunch at the top, you've, you've put in basically a maximum effort. And that's, that's what we want to know. And if you, coasted your way up and you get to the top and you walk around for 10 seconds and you're good to go, you didn't try hard enough. And so again, everybody's different. So seeing into looking into their eyes in those situations and knowing, oh yeah, that was, I may have to help you down the hill or you could have done a lot more with that kind of helps me. It just, I'm building my database of info on what each player needs to hear from me from that point forward. And how many how many of the players have got it wrong with that they've kind of gone balls to the wall and and, <laughs> and really been struggling and like crawling up towards the end? So it's short enough that you it takes me twenty two to twenty four seconds to get to the top. So that's that's a long time, right? It's not just a quick sprint. It's a you have to you have to go about three quarter speed. And I'm always I'm always telling people fourth gear, fourth gear. Because you want to, you don't want to start out in a sprint and crawl across the finish. You want to finish strong. So, and when we play matches, if you're in fifth gear, you're revving too high, you're overexcited. So you, so you have to find that happy medium of close to maximum effort without truly being in the red zone. And so I'm always telling people find that fourth gear where you can start and finish at almost the same speed, but know when you get to the top that. If I went any faster, I might be falling down and, and finding your way into that zone for somebody who's new to playing sports or at least playing a sport like racquetball um, is not always easy, but when it clicks, it makes such a, a huge difference moving forward. That's quite a challenge though, Darren, don't, don't, yeah. wouldn't you agree? Because ultimately I think as a society, it's either zero or it's a hundred. And right. there's, there's, for most people, there's no in between. I'm, I'm either con- comfortable, <laughs> in control. Right. I'm not going to be rude this time. I'm being, I'm being at that comfortable state as is pretty easy to maintain. Yeah. Or I go 100 mile an hour and I'm out of control. Right. Yeah. It, finding that balance is key, you know, and, and, you know, as you alluded to earlier and, and I have said also everybody's different. And so that's the real fun challenge for me as a coach is like I said, to help people break through their own preconceived barriers and find another gear or another level that, that they didn't think was there and learn how to perform under pressure because those skills translate throughout the rest of your life. If you can get a handle on that now, early in life as a college student, uh, through the venue of sports, that will apply in doing job interviews, first dates, uh, you know, asking for a raise, whatever it is that is a high stress situation, you can fall back on the skills that you learn playing sports and access that, that, same, that same mentality to get you through a situation that has nothing to do with being on the court but is still, you know, performance driven and out and in uh, results oriented. Well, you'd probably hear this with, with, with your day job in terms, of, you know, the tangibles, you know, the, right. what what you're able to take over from sport. Um, I'll hear it all the time from business people. Our oh, business is very much like, like like sport. 
Okay. The competitive nature of it, yes. But there's tangibles that you don't take from sport of what was I saying the, just this morning? Trust. Um, what's another one? You, you don't judge people by any other thing but their 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 character traits and that's it. Like I'm going to judge you on whether or not you can make me better, whether or not you're going to help me win. And then everything else is kind of put to one side. Whereas supposedly, quote unquote, people are being judged based on this, their, 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 their name. Uh, and I'm talking about CVs. Mm-hmm. Um, potentially the, the race, their ethnicity, uh, their gender etc whereas it's like well yeah you're comparable when it comes to analytics or or data data sets as in terms of there's there's, uh, a result to be had yes they're they're they're, they're similar but obviously i've never had an issue with people in my sporting career but I think I was a little bit tamer. I'm probably more ferocious now. Now I've retired. <laughs> of I stayed under the radar. I kept my my nose squeaky quick. You know, I can't say the word squeaky clean, and was more of a yes sir. So now I'm probably the opposite, complete opposite. If I don't agree with something, I'll say it. But that 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 is probably an evolution that you we were talking about with yourself. I've I've evolved probably slight tendencies of. Uh, I, I wanted to say something in my athletic career, but I didn't. Now I'm going to say it because it's, yeah. if I don't like something, there's no point keeping your mouth shut. If, if for example, client doesn't do as I told, uh, as one former client did, I just brought it up as well. I don't want to treat you like a child. I don't think you've ever coached <laughs> me like that. But yeah. it's 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 awkward as an, as an adult as to, well, you're making this mistake over and over again. And that's maybe where I'm a little bit harsher. Yeah. I've tweaked it a little bit since, but they did it once, did it twice. It's like, well, I don't want to, I don't want you doing it a third time and treat you like a child, but I'll have to right. bring you in line to improve. I'm going to have, to. but they respected that. Whereas yeah. I think if you were to say that to an athlete, I said them once, you're doing something wrong. Come on, let's get it in shape. and Let's yeah. get it going. Um, but that's that. That's probably the difference. As uh, I was speaking to um, Thomas Williams, who's been on, on on the show previously, and he kind of made it ev- evident to me, like, well, if you're in a sporting environment, if you don't meet the standard, people will let you know about it, and they'll let you know very quickly of if it's subpar. Mm-hmm. And this is probably where you were talking about with the hill. Yep. You'll let the player know as to okay, how you would use the language. I don't know what why why is there this um unwillingness, these are my words, yeah. not yours, to to go what what what's it gonna get you to get over the threshold to 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 fill the gap between what the other people are doing yeah. and yourself. Yeah, Obviously you would probably probably voice that differently. Uh, that's pretty pretty close. I mean, you know what are, what are you unwilling to feel? Right? Is what are you afraid of? Are you, are you afraid you're going to pass out or throw up or fall down? You know, ten yards short of the finish line? Because I've done all that and I'm still here. And believe me, if you do those things, you will be a better person for it. So a lot of it is. And, and, you know, we're, I'm not timing people. I, I made that mistake in the beginning. I would pair people up and have them race up the hill. That, that turned out to be problematic. So I, uh, I had, and I have a, I had a couple of kids that were like, had a, a cross country background or a soccer background where they were excellent runners. So I would have them carry a rock like with both hands and run up the hill with the rock in their hands. Right. Because running the hill was easy for them. For me, I know that is an all-out effort. And for other, other, some of the other kids on the team, I know that if they get to the top of the hill in 30 seconds, they absolutely push themselves to their max. So it's not about, like you said, with the work analogy, 
you know, can you, can you meet the criteria of let's call it my 22 seconds? That's not the criteria. It's what are, are you maximizing your own effort to get the best results for yourself? And that's why it's an individual run up the hill instead of everybody running at the same time or pairing people up and trying to make it a true race. It's really much more about getting in your own head and hearing that voice that's telling you to quit and just slapping it quiet and continuing to do what you need to do to get the job done. And, and which is again, you know, your maximum effort, what, whatever that is. And so the, the only way to do that is to throw yourself into those situations and figure it out as you go. And having a coach that's a run the hill ahead of you and already at the top, who's yelling for you, encouraging you, come on, come on, you can do it. Keep digging. Uh, all of those things really help a lot in, in breaking through those barriers and making you realize that you're a lot more capable than most, most people give themselves credit for. Well, that, that's, that's good to hear Dan. Cause you don't, you don't, you usually hear praise, especially not in American sports as it's, it's, it's quite, if you talk about, um, well, you we, we use American football for the analogy. Um, it's never pra- it's, 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 it's probably old school as you're not good enough uh, and things like that to, to, to do reverse psychology in a sense. Right. That's what it right. is. It's to kind of go, well, I'm going to show you. Right. And some people respond to that, but, uh, and, and I, there are, uh, there are, there's always a couple of kids on the team that need a challenge more than they need a pound on the back. I don't think you can score 10 points on me tonight. I, in fact, I'll bet you a protein shake after practice. You're not going to, there's no way you're getting to double digits. Some people, that's exactly what they want to hear. For some people, it's like, oh, geez, thanks, coach. Well, all right, I'll try my best. But if I'm not going to get to double digits, why are we bothering to do this, right? That kid needs a very different approach. Um, the true competitors, I would say, can can manage either set of motivations, whether it is a positive and praising approach or it is a challenging and maybe even a negative, you know, you're not good. I Prove to me that you're good enough kind of approach. And again, with my assistant coach, we get to play good cop, bad cop sometimes. And, uh, and, and the kids get a little a dose of each. And that helps us again, dial into who needs what. And unbeknownst to the kids, which I'm sure that I'm spilling the secret now because they'll watch this. We keep notes on all of that stuff. And, and whoever we're a better fit for in a coaching environment, that's who we coach. So there's, there's some kids that need Jim's little bit harsher uh, and clear cut black and white approach. And then there's kids that need my softer gray area. You know, I can, I can kick you in the butt or I can give you a hug, whichever you need kind of approach. And so we try to divvy up the coaching responsibilities in competition based on who we, uh, who identifies with our skill set better. Always mix it up in preseason yeah. and kind of say, well, you might've heard this, but we're going to switch it up today. <laughs> Right, but obviously I take it as a compliment because obviously you said a competitive nature. I probably fit it somewhere in between. And, and coming back to my earlier point of which James is going to turn up, yeah, I think I I would probably fit in between yourself and and, and Jim quite well because sometimes I, I need a pat on the back and sometimes I need the boo up my ass. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, yeah. It's, it's it's not. A, but that's probably I'm from a bygone era that's probably somewhere in between it's it's not it's not viewed as uh clear-cut as they will push back against yeah. things that they don't agree with and with and i'm not of the area that is no nonsense either it's uh of being my parents or my grandparents as well okay yeah. i've had a i've had this happen to me oh well we get on with it um it, it's probably filtered down a little bit and I do have kind of that mental mental attitude sometimes. Sometimes I don't, um, and sometimes I'm like a machine. And sometimes, yeah, uh, I need to be a little bit more emphasis. So some people praise me for I like your machine like attitude. It's like yeah, I, I it, but it doesn't serve when you're trying to help people's lives because it's like right. well, you can't re- you can't relate to a 
another human being if you're robocop or the terminator sure. it's it's yeah. it's yeah. you've got no no human I, I i obviously do have a human emotion i'm not i'm not i'm i'm not i'm not a lunatic but sometimes <clears throat> i think it is sport allows you to either grow a thicker skin or, or to put a suit of armor on and you yeah. don't want to let your gut down because you've been coached or taught as i won't say weakness is bad but ultimately if anybody sees a, any ounce of frailty yeah you pounce yeah yeah it's you know that's again for me that's that's the the uncertainty of all of that is the fun part as a coach i know that i did not i was never going to show up at a tournament for a for the audience, just for some context, a, a racquetball tournament is typically four day, a pro tournament was four days. And so you played a qualifying match and then to get into the main draw, and then you played main draw matches. So whether it was a, a, an amateur tournament or a pro tournament over the course of four days like that, I was going to have one day where I was going to be great, but I was going to have another day where I was not going to be at my best by any means. That was the most important day. I should win when I'm playing really well, most of the time. It's getting through the match where I'm not 100%, where maybe I don't feel like being there or I didn't sleep well the night before and I'm playing a morning match and it's just taking my body a while to wake up and get going. You have to survive the worst day of the four days to end up winning the tournament. The, when you when you're, everything's firing on all cylinders, you probably win more often than not in that situation. Can you build a game plan and a strategy that gets you through that off time and keeps you alive throughout the rest of the tournament. Cause you don't know what day that's going to be. It's not necessarily day one. It could be Saturday in the semifinals with a chance to make it to the big stage and play in the finals. That may be the one that you go, Oh man, I'm just feeling flat. I don't have it today. You still have to win that match. That's your job. And figuring those things out for yourself, what motivates you in that moment, whether it is, I got to do this for the team or I, I got to make it to the finals to make the, you know, make the paycheck that I need to get to the next tournament or to pay rent or whatever it may be. Um, you know, that's, that's the delicious uncertainty of coaching, helping people through those situations uh, after doing that for so many years myself. Nah, I'm going to come at this slightly differently than I wanted to. In most cases, that shouldn't be a challenge, should it? The, the semi-final, it should be pretty cl clear cut. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying it, it, it isn't because the 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 rare, the the one percent chance that you you are flat is I'm very unfortunate. It happens then, um, but for most cases, it would be. I, I'm talking more for people that maybe dislike sport, have a love hate relationship because of something previous obviously they can't relate to, well, why would you be flat on that occasion? Because that is pretty much make or break. Uh, if it was, say, a national championship semi-final, that you might have one opportunity to be in, in, in the final of winning a national title. So that one, you would think that you would be but then it can go like we were talking about earlier it can go one or two ways you 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 get you get caught up in the headlights like a rabbit and there, right. there's a problem and you freeze which happened to me um and, and i've done it one time one time since at a lower level and i kind of went come on james you've done this before why did you do it again but i made a big deal of it because the more recent one I'd missed two games previously. So I had to make, I kind of said, well, James, you got to make a statement here because you need to try and break into the starting lineup. So you got to play well. I did the reverse. <laughs> I, played, yeah. I played worse. Um, yeah. and I, never, I was like, well, okay, James, next time you don't make a big deal about it. You don't talk about it on social media like you did. And then we won't have a problem. And that's what I learned from it. But obviously you've got the other one of, if you can be the rabbit in the headlights or the other one that the 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 occasion actually makes you outperform your your, your potential those yeah. ones are very i don't think it's ever happened to me but those are you don't want to be on the receiving end of the person that that happens to because you're ultimately right. probably going to lose uh because they kind of managed to 
be you know very very extrovert it's like all oh, these are camera lights well let's 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 entertain and let's show up i don't think it doesn't matter what you do if you're you, you're on a slightly lower uh temperament than them are you you're not likely to win you got to kind of match it um but yeah. the point i'm i'm making is i think from a mindset perspective you don't want to ever have any day that's your off day you'd rather happen that happen in practice it's like okay i've it's happened once i can learn from it you don't want to ever have it happen um in any sport and and be it in a, any prime time you don't yeah. want it to happen in the um when it when it counts yeah and, and ideally that's that's the case of course but as, as you know being an athlete for as long as you have it, those things are inevitable right you you make the finals and you have somebody that you should beat and you have a terrible performance and you lose you end up with a like i i ended up playing into the number one professional player uh in almost every tournament if i would make it through the qualifying and then win my first match that was my next match and you know there's i've i've taken games off of the best players in the world but never matches in a 10 minute microcosm of that match i was fantastic and my skills outdid the best player in the world in that 10 minutes right i couldn't sustain that over an hour to win a match against the best player in the world but they their level would drop my level would go up and that was enough for me to sneak out a game in a three a best three out of five match but i could not i didn't have the ability to sustain that over a long enough time to win against the best players on the planet do so, you do you use that with your coaching then to kind of showcase well this is my life lesson to you from previous experience uh that's a that i i fall back to that one a lot and and especially in in a very closely competitive match if we know going in like exam the my girl from the previous four years um she had played the other top level juniors from around the world in junior racquetball and now they're in college so they're they're familiar competitors and there was one particular person that they were dead even like their record against each other was literally like 25 and 25 and i kept telling her look you need to play well enough to be close at the end of one of the first two games and then have five minutes where you're great and you win that game. And it might only take two minutes, but you, you, all, you don't have to be great from start to finish. You have to be good and solid and be in position to win and then find that extra gear for just a short po portion of time so that you can win that game. Then you're in position to win the match because you have one game under your belt and whether it's the next game or the tiebreaker, you are in position to win overall. And now you just have to replicate that one more time where you stay close or you stay out ahead. And when the moment comes, you seize that opportunity, you find that extra gear, you click in and you're brilliant for two minutes or five minutes. And that's enough for you to win the match overall. And then the opposite, I lost to one of my best friends on the pro tour 11-0-11-0-11-0. I never scored a single point. And it got written up in the racquetball magazine. I mean, I still get crap about that once in a while when I run into guys that I competed against that I played at the pro level and never scored a single point. Now, two things. One, my friend Lewis would have done that to a lot of other players because he was definitely better than I. Um, and he had the potential to do that at any moment, but to do it in a pro tournament was crazy. You're right. I, I choked I, when he was up six zero in the first game, the thought went through my head. Oh my God, I might not score today. And, and Oops. that, it just kept getting worse and that. worse. You don't want that. I think I've Ooh. had to say that to somebody or somebody in my industry and they would kind of say, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to have, um, uh, no what no I, I i can't have a bad episode with right. coming on my podcast like we'll take that word out because ultimately that's yeah uh, I, I can do loads of magic behind the scenes to 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 make it better or ultimately there's the wrong it's the wrong attitude in the first place because yeah 
your, your brain doesn't hear the negative part of that. It doesn't hear, I shouldn't do this. It just hears, I bad performance, right? It takes the middle, it takes the disqualifier that you think you're saying out of the sentence and just hears, I am going to have a bad performance. And so, you know, back to, to my point about getting embarrassed and not scoring, it got written up in the magazine as the first time a ranked pro ever lost to, uh, without scoring a point, all this stuff, right? I'm still here, right? Yeah, it was embarrassing. And I carried that around for a long time. But the reality is, it doesn't define me as a person. It didn't define me as a racquetball player. It happened during that one tournament. I happened to be running the tournament as well. So I can't say that I was you know, had an unencumbered mind walking onto the court. Um, but that aside, it happened. I dealt with it and it wasn't the end of my career or me as a person by any means. So when I send a kid into a situation where it's like, oh my God, coach, I'm scared. I don't want to look bad out here. It's like, let me tell you what bad looks like. It happened to me. This is not going to happen to you. Let's just go out and have fun. And, and remember it's two against one. I'm way smarter than that kid. And I'll bet money I'm way smarter than his coach too. So we're, we are going to go in and win this match together. I'll handle all the, the details. You just go in and play and I'll give you a little bit of pointers here and there on what to do and we'll be fine. And that helps people perform a lot better in those situations. Has that ever happened since? No, mm. I don't, I, not, not in the context of what I experienced. Um, I was a ranked pro losing to, I was 32 at the time, I think. Uh, and my friend was, uh, a 10 or 11 in the world. And, uh, and so somebody who's in the top 32, I, I don't believe that that's ever happened since it, it may have, but I, I, I would assume I would have heard about it if somebody else had say, Hey, guess what? You're not the only one. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure I unfortunately hold that unique distinction. <laughs> yeah, but it's a perspective. It's how you look at it. Um, what was it? Uh, oh, what's the German? There's a German football team that's went pretty much the entirety of the season without winning a game. Yeah. But their fans hold that as, as it's like one of the Berlin ones. I can't remember which one it was. And they, they hold pride. There was one uh, Schalke um, in the Rhineland, so close to it this season. And they were happy when that team won a game. Yeah. <laughs> As well, we still hold the the notoriety uh, of, of of still holding this record, but it keeps you it keeps you in the record books, and it keeps the <laughs> um, probably it's more of a tourist kind of thing. Kind of thing. well, this team is not went an entire season without winning. Yeah. Um, but. And I forgot my second question now, but that kind of shows I got deep into what you were saying in, in terms of showcasing your deal with like the X knows and you just wanted the player to execute. Yeah. Again, I want, I want to help people find that fourth gear, that zone where they can go out and get out of their own way, perform to the best of their ability and if there's something that I can contribute to the match, like the tempo, for example, I know certain players, um, they're better off when they're forcing the pace and some players are, are more in their own comfort level when they're more of a counter puncher and letting the other person seemingly dictate, but they're using that person's energy and force against them. So um, those are the kind of things being a third party observer outside the court is a lot easier to do than when you're a participant in the match. And so when, so, when I tell somebody to call a timeout or in between games and I can say, hey, look, this, these three stick with these two things. They're working really well, but I want you to add this in, add in this serve or play a little bit more defense for the first two or three shots of the rally and then switch over to offense and watch how many more mistakes your opponent makes because they're not patient enough to do the same thing. And, and it's easy for me to really have a lot of influence over the outcome of a match because again, it's, you know, vast experience, of course, but also that third party view of things, it's easier for me to see that than it ever could be for somebody inside the court and being able to share that with them on, you know, in the moment of the match can make a huge difference. So is it a bit like, um, Muhammad Ali foreman type approach, or if we were to go to 
more recent, like, well, obviously aggressor is Mike Tyson. Of nobody wanted to be in the ring with him because he's because right. he was a lunatic. But <laughs> in terms of if you, he went on the front foot, you were lights out. Yeah, yeah, and again, you know, I I truly believe sports in general, but definitely racquetball. You know, maybe that's easy for me to say that because that was my sport of choice. But it becomes a reflection of your personality. So for me, I was definitely you know a driving, grinding all out effort all the time kind of a player. I didn't have a huge serve where I was dictating things from the from the moment the match started where I walked up to the service box and was blasting serves at people and had them on their heels right away. I was a grinder. I was more like, you know, death by a thousand pinpricks instead of one one quick sword slice. Um and so, you know, that's my mentality in life, right? I work hard at my job. I'm more of a grinder and a long, you know, a, a, a slow, steady approach to the end goal. Um, and, and, and that reflected in my sports career. And, and I took that same approach into my professional career in sales as well. So whatever it is that you gravitate towards as an athlete, I think those are things that those are character traits that will show up in the rest of your life and how it, the better you learn to hone those things, uh, rein them in when you need to turn them loose when you need to, the better that will that will help you throughout the course of your life, not just sports. And obviously, we're coming time to the to the episode, Darren. Okay. So I like to ask this of all my guests, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna be generous. I'm gonna have two because uh, you're in the coaching side of things as well. The first question is: If you had to sit down with any athlete, dead or alive, for that matter, who would that be, and why? And my second question to you. Which coach would you like to sit down with, dead or alive? Um, whew, let's see. From an athlete perspective, I, I watched the Last Dance uh, series with. Um, so, uh, you know, that seems like an obvious answer. You know, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, somebody like that. Um, but the, those people are so. A lot of what they bring to the table is so front and center and accessible. I would probably go the opposite route of somebody that rose from uh, a, di- a very difficult beginning and background to almost the, that level of notoriety. And I'll, I'll share a quote from Johnny Miller, the, the PGA golfer from a long, long time ago. He was a commentator for years. He retired recently, but he has a great quote that I love. And his, his quote is, you should not measure a person by what they achieve, but by what they overcome. And so maybe my answer would be Johnny Miller because he come, came from a very humble background, uh, was the last person to win eight tournaments in a single, single calendar year before Tiger Woods did it. Um, as a coach, I find somebody like that probably more valuable in terms of advice than somebody who is unbelievably talented that can just go out and outperform everybody. Now we all know the story of Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school team and all that, and then turning that around. Um, But if you look at Tiger Woods, he was on TV as a two-year-old demonstrating the golf swing that he had. That was amazing at that age, right? For his whole life, that's what he did. And he was a standout at every level. Most people do not have that kind of ability and therefore, following that person's advice or trying to follow their lead isn't very applicable. That's why I gravitate towards somebody like the Johnny Miller example of that's somebody that you can take their lessons and apply to a whole wide spectrum of people instead of the elite of the elite that does things that no one else on the planet can do. And then as far as your coaching question, um, I'm a big fan of Vince Lombardi, the the football coach for the Green Bay Packers from, from many years ago. Um, he was, he was kind of the first coach that really had more of, you know, he had a hard nosed edge to him for sure, but he loved his players and his players loved him. He was really one of the first guys that brought that father slash coach slash mentor approach at that, you know, at the pro football level. And then because of the success that he had, other coaches kind of started to follow suit with that. Um, so he would definitely be somebody that I would love to, to have dinner with and be able to sit down and, 
and pick his brain on, you know, how he approached things, how he, uh, you know, talked to different players in different ways to get the best out of everybody. I, I think that would be fascinating. My final question, Darren, before we wrap up the episode, if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? <laughs> Excellent question. Um, regardless of what the goal is, it's your big time. And that's what matters. You don't have to win a national championship. You don't have to be the number one player in the world. If you are in a tennis league and you want to finish with a a winning record for the first time, or you're on a sports team and you're going to go to a state championship or whatever, anything that you choose as an endeavor is your big time and you should treat it accordingly. Don't minimize the fact that you're not on TV when you are, you're not, you know, getting interviewed for the moment you walk off the court with your, your win, Uh, whatever your big time is treat it accordingly. And, and I think you'll enjoy the ride a lot more. So once again, then thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode and got loads from it. Anything that was included and discussed will be available in the show notes below. And I would love to hear from you. Come and connect and ask your questions. I've been James Roberts from jamesowenroberts.com. Remember this quote by Chris Hoth. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute, not by some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete.